For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. For new people on Zoom, I'm Tygen Layton, the uh, guiding Dharma teacher of Ancient Dragon Zengate. Um, can you hear me down there in Ebenezer? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm very happy to have with us giving the talk tonight, Co. Carol Larson, who's coming to us from Cleveland. Uh, Co. is a very experienced practitioner. Uh, she was lay ordained by my teacher, Tenshin Reb Anderson. She's done practice period at Tassajara and practiced extensively at Green Gulch Farm as well. And way back in the old days when Ancient Dragon Zengate used to have a storefront uh, temple on Irving Park Road, she attended Rohatsu Sashin there. Um, currently, Ko is on the Ancient Dragon Zengate board and also is one of our assistant directors. So thank you very much, Ko, for giving the talk tonight. And uh, it's all yours. Well, uh, first, I'd like to um, express my gratitude at um, Tigan to Tigan to for um, allowing this opportunity to give a Dharma talk, and also the kindness of the Sangha um, to extend your uh, far eastern suburb to include Cleveland um, and the Chicago uh, family. It's been very meaningful to me to have that that world to hold me and to be holding you. Um, yesterday, at the end of uh, Tygen's talk, his Sunday talk, there was a, a comment about how humans were um, narrative makers, were storytellers, that that's and our brains just like like the gallbladder secretes bile, the brain secretes stories. That's just sort of its function. And many of the stories that we see are external, are, are cultural stories. They're the stories that hold us together as a people. They're um, political stories. Um, we all know how different political parties want to um, control the narrative, um, which very much lifts off of the truth oftentimes. Um, there's science, I think, is a great story generator also. It's, it's a very rule-based way of creating stories of how reality functions from a material um, point of view. So they create stories of how how something falls, how does gravity to describe gravity and to, to look at that and to make sure it's a story that's repeatable by everybody. So it's a very fact-based um, story set is our scientific understanding. Um, I want to just hold up one more, an odd storytelling cultural phenomenon of creating theater where one person writes a story, divides the parts up, People memorize it and repeatedly perform it night after night. Um, 
there's so many ways in which we have embraced stories um, in our interpersonal world. But tonight I want to focus more on our internal stories, the things that go on in our mind that aren't necessarily seen or um, repeatable in that way. And oftentimes I have found that the stories that are going on in our heads are not seen by us, although they will often have great consequences. Um, so as a young, even teenager, I was very interested in meditation. And so I read various books or went to workshops as I came into my 20s. And the first formal meditation instruction I ever received was at um, Naropa. I was there in the early 80s. And I was taking a, a dance class because Naropa had a lot of arts, embraced a lot of the arts as well. I was taking a dance class, a theater class, a poetics class, a Buddhist studies class. And in the application, there was a little thing. Do you want um, meditation instruction? And you can check yes or no. And I checked yes. And they paired me up with a woman who lived on the other side of town. I walked over there. And the only thing I really remember, um, I mean, her warmth inviting me into her living room. And the instruction was, um, let the mind be like a, a sky, a clear blue sky, and just observe the thoughts as they go through as, as if there were clouds, insubstantial clouds going by, which is very good instruction for a, a beginner such as I was. And then I kept reading more and more and finding more about what meditation was. And somehow I got the errant idea that good meditation was when the clouds were all gone. <laughs> that, that what was wanted was some sort of state where there were no images, no thoughts, and that would be some sort of blissful enlightenment. So I kind of wanted that. So I, I would grasp at any time I could, could, send the thoughts away and have what felt quiet to me. I felt like I was doing a good thing. And anytime that the, the thoughts or stories were coming up, um, I, I thought that was not a good thing. That was not a good meditation. And the years rolled on. And in the early 2000s, um, Reb, Tension Reb Anderson came to Cleveland. And the first time it was a weekend, um, retreat. And his primary um, focus on that one was being upright. That when um, events would come at you, that instead of leaning into them in either aggression or greed, or leaning back in uh, fear or disgust, that to keep that upright posture and just meet them upright, whatever was coming. And I found that really useful in my day-to-day -day life, um, that somehow the integrity of my posture could permeate um, my relations um, with the world. And then some several years later, he came to Pittsburgh. And at that retreat, um, he began by talking about the three different types of karma 
um, um, all my ancient twisted karma um, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. And the three types of karma he would he, he set us up thinking about was the actions. Karma is action. Um, the actions of the body, gestural things that one would do physically, of speech. I would see that as language. But what was the karma of the mind? What were the the how were the thoughts karma? I, I don't know if it's an English uh, thing or if it was my own bias, but for me, action was something that could be seen and, and somehow what was going on in the mind was not action. But looking at it more deeply, I could see that the thoughts of the mind were the motivations for the, the things that I would do with my body or my speech that if I was insulted and made up a story about how that person was disrespecting me or something like that, then they'd get a punch. But the punch was born of the action of the mind. It wasn't um, merely coming out of nowhere and that, or it became action when it was happening in my body. It was the action began in the brain or in the mind or that space. And the next day, we were given the teaching that during our meditation, we should lovingly observe all the stories of our minds, lovingly and respectfully welcome into our mind. And that was mind blowing because I had that sense that, that a good meditation was no thoughts. And here I was inviting them and I was going to, um, treat them with respect as opposed to to just try to shove them away. And there was something about the explicit permission from a Zen teacher to embrace my thoughts, which was incredibly liberating. And so I, I and I haven't seen this teaching very many other places, so I wanted to share it with you. I, I received this teaching in 2007. And it's been very sustaining um, to me. And in that laboratory of my mind, I'm trained as a scientist, so I'll use a lot of of thoughts of science um, in here as well. Um, So in this laboratory of my mind, I got to, to try this new process. And one of the things that was... um, and again, it'll be different for everybody. And I just wanted to share what was happening in my inner space. But one of the first things that happened was these thoughts that kept intruding and, and crowding in. Once I, in many ways, took that backward step and shined the light within, they were like like shy woodland creatures. And the, when the light was on them, they all froze and got quiet. And my thoughts, like, they didn't necessarily disappear, but they didn't want to be seen there was a certain resistance mm-hmm. in my thought process to being observed lovingly or or not um so sometimes when i would try to observe them and that was my intention and they would like freeze or scurry away like cockroaches when you turn on the light in a in a new york apartment um i get bored and then get dull and then one of the 
thought stories would come and kind of take over again. And I'd be riding it or it would be riding me one way or the other. And, and that was a tight, close thing. But when you know, I, I it was a five day retreat. So I got to practice over and over again. Um, each time I, I lost the instruction, I could come back and, and try again. And through that five day retreat, there was so much more spaciousness um, coming into my inner world. Once this, this capacity to observe with love was there, there was now a space between me and my stories or my images or, or, or whatever would come up with that. And I think I'd like to say a little bit about the types of stories that come up. There's sort of the natural history of the stories. There's um, the stories of the past that are recent. And so the, 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 that person over there that you really think doesn't really like you very much, they, they, they clearly gave you the side eye and, and, you know, the stories of, of happening, what's happening right here and now that is fitting into perhaps the older stories, the, those rusty stories of childhood where no one understood me or my brothers always beat me up or, and I'll, and one of the things that's, you know, you're in one of those deluded stories is whenever you say this always happened or they never did this or that's now become a real red flag for me. If, if I ever start telling a story, which has one of those universal words in it, you just know it's not true. Um, so it's, it's fun then to look for the counter examples. Um, that's a good antidote with that. So I would like to um, read a, a little snippet from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, um, from uh, Shunmyo Suzuki's um, very famous book. And it, it, um, it supports what Reb was teaching, but, but a slightly different um, uh, sensibility. Um, to give your sheep or cow a large, spacious meadow is the way to control him. So it is with people. First, let them do what they want and watch them. This is the best policy. To ignore them is not good. That is the worst policy. The second worst is trying to control them. The best one is to watch them, just to watch them without trying to control them. The same way works for yourself as well. If you want to obtain perfect calmness in your zazen, you should not be bothered by the various images you find in your mind. Let them come and let them go. Then they will be under control. But this policy is not so easy. It sounds easy, but it requires some special effort. How to make this kind of effort is the secret of practice. Suppose you are sitting under some extraordinary circumstances. If you try to calm your mind, you'll be unable to sit. 
and if you try not to be disturbed, your effort will not be the right effort. Um, and that speaks very much to my condition, my early conditions, when I thought that I shouldn't have thoughts. I wanted to, the calm. I wanted it all to be flat and then open up somehow. So again, there's that quality of simply watching without having to sort anything. And that's the way to bring those images and stories to bring them to a place where they can become beneficial. One of the, the other things that Reb posited um, with the first instruction is if, if you observe your stories with that kind, loving attention, they will transform in beneficial ways, beneficial both to you and the world. And if you do not observe them, then they transform in non-beneficial ways that, that the stories then start leading you around by your nose. And, and I found myself when that would be happening, I would identify with them and I would not question the stories. Even though they were clearly um, with any sort of reflection um, agents of delusion. Um, Oh, the other um, little teaching I'd like to bring up is, um, so there's those, those stories, but then there's also the things that, um, that we pushed away and we um, relegate uh, to the basement. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the living room of consciousness. There's your, in your house, you've got this living room and that's where your conscious mind is. And we oftentimes will um, put the pieces of us that we don't want in the basement. Um, Jungians might call that the shadow, um, but there are different ways of saying, oh, this is not me. This is not what I want. This is not the way I want to feel. And then you lock the door and then, or, or you say sometimes, I can't deal with this now. I'll deal with this later. So when you're sitting in, in Zazen, it's like these things that you have relegated to elsewhere say, okay, you said you could deal with it later. doesn't look like you're doing anything now. And they'll clump up. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh talked about never have to be fearful about letting up anything from the basement into your living room. As long as you remember to invite the guest of mindfulness first. And for me, mindfulness is that loving, welcoming awareness um, that can welcome anything. So as long as you make sure you have mindfulness sitting there on the couch with you, you can start letting these, these the ugly monsters in and sit with them and then see how they transform. Um, oftentimes, they've just been lonely or they're hungry or that once you stop making them horrible things that they come up and they turn into little puppies um, in the presence of loving awareness. So I find that a, a very, have found that through my life, a way forward um, and a way to integrate more of who I am. Cause also for me, a lot of what uh, Zen practices is, is 
um, waking up to my own authentic self. Um, and little by little, the pieces that we relegate away saying that's not us. Well, it is. So if you can bring that up into your, your living space, then it can continue to fuel you and help you and move you forward, move me forward. Uh, and one of the things that sort of a little sneaky thing that happened with that instruction is we all have the seeds of that kind, loving, welcoming being, but if it's never used, it, it, it doesn't really develop. So by being told to watch lovingly all of our thoughts, I started developing a, a loving watcher just by having that as my intention. Um, so that's a way of working in a sort of psychological way. Um, so that's one kind of story. The, the ones that just sort of naturally chug away, the causes and conditions just running on. And then there's the other type of story, which we have in our tradition and many traditions, which is the teaching stories. So the teaching stories, I think of them, I don't know if you've heard the, the term uh, using a thorn to get out a thorn. So if you've got a thorn embedded, you use a thorn to, to, to get the splinter out. And I think that in many ways, teaching stories are stories and verbiage to get out these unhealthy, hurting stories that we have in us. So um, I, I just will also want to reference um, uh, Brian Taylor's talk from uh, late, uh, I think it was February, where he talked about le lecto divina, in which you really saturate yourself into a teaching, a, a sutra, or, or some sort of, of deep which we all do when we chant, right? Uh, homage to the perfection of wisdom is a deep um, piece that we bring in and perhaps memorize. And then those words can come up, you know, uh, and as this Sandukai, as, as, as Genjo Koan. Um, and one of the, the things that I found is that the brilliance of this teaching story sometimes have to do with their incomprehensibility in the first reading that there's something about their metaphor that takes a while to understand. So it keeps coming back up. Um, for me, uh, something in the, the self receiving and employing Samadhi. And I know you guys don't have this the, in Chicago. There's not the same translation as in green Gulch, but I just wanted to hold up one of the lines that, has, has um, resonates with me is that each moment of Zazen is like um, a hammer striking emptiness. So there's this idea of hammer striking emptiness that I can just keep going back to. And it's, it's not something I can just grasp or understand easily. It's, it's a resonant image that keeps going. So paradox, I think, is one of the things that teaching stories use well. Um, and then another thing that's, uh, I think is delightful in some teaching stories is humor. Um, a story that I 
wanted to just bring up. It's a very short story, but it's um, so a person was walking down the road and suddenly saw a horse and rider galloping toward them. And it seemed like the, the rider was in a great hurry and had great urgency. And the person on the road said, what's the rush? Where are you going? And the rider says, don't ask me, ask the horse. Um, so oftentimes, for, for me, that's very much about my mind. If my mind's very busy, it's the horse. And the work in watching and finding that you, you are sort of in control of what you want to put in your mind and where you want to dwell is um, that strengthening, that loving attention is, is giving the rider some agency rather than just being run away with. Um, and then one other story that I, I have no idea why it keeps coming up to me to, to say tonight, but um, I think I'll end on a Sufi story, which is um, there was a seeker who was very diligent um, and wanted all these teachings, would always look for different types of teachings that, that would bring them in a line with reality. And he was walking in the desert once and he saw this rock and it said, under this rock is a great teaching. And he's like, oh, okay, I, I've got to get under this rock. And so he, the rock was big and he dug and he figured out how to deliver it out. And he finally flipped the rock over and under the rock was the words, why are you looking for more teachings? You don't practice what you have already. Um, so I'm just going to end with that um, particular teaching story. And uh, would love to hear anybody's um, comments, questions, or um, ways of working with their own internal stories. Thank you so much, Ko, for a really wonderful, very helpful talk. I think it's very common that people come to practice, and even after many years, think of practice as trying to get rid of all the thoughts and feelings and, you know, find some open space that doesn't have any clouds and uh yeah to, to non-judgmentally just witness to everything that comes up lovingly as you say uh, so i this is a really helpful wonderful uh way of seeing the dynamics of zazen of and of our life so uh please, any anybody in at ebenezer or on zoom comments questions responses please feel free Amina. Thank you, Ko, very much for that talk. Um, it was really helpful. I, I enjoyed it, the thorn and the thorn and the last story you just told. Um, I've been doing this thing lately sometimes where if I sit and a lot of thoughts are coming up, um, afterwards I'll think, well, no, you didn't You didn't just meditate. That wasn't meditation or that wasn't yeah. something. Um, and as you, were, as you were speaking, I was kind of asking myself the question like, what is the difference between um, sitting there thinking <laughs> and meditation? And I know, I, you know, I know that it's, it's all meditation, you know, because I'm, I'm sitting down or it's all Zazen. I've, I've, I'm sitting down um, with all those thoughts, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting. Um, but the, the idea of the uh, loving watcher is helpful for me. And I, I think I'm going to sit with that next time. Oh, good. Yeah, thank we you. We enjoy each other. 
<laughs> Other comments? Uh, can somebody at Ebenezer call on people there if there's hands up? Yeah, I can do that. Hi, Linda. Good evening. Thank you. Thanks, Cole. That was great. I want to echo what Amina said. I really, I my background is um, the Thich Nhat Hanh um, background, and I am familiar with watching the seeds that you water and, and mm -hmm. cultivating the seeds, the wholesome seeds. But um, what you said about developing the loving watcher, I mean, I, I, I get the part about watching your thoughts and not attaching to them. But doing it as a loving watcher was really a nice, compassionate, gentle way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. And it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Done. Hello, Carl. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Wow, oh, this is cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, that was a really wonderful uh, talk, uh, and I wanted to thank you for that passage from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, because I was thinking, I, I was trying to remember that that passage uh, yesterday uh, when we were talking about grandparental or grandmotherly mind, yeah. um, and and that that specific passage from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind was somewhere in my head and I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but I, I knew I was like, Oh, this is reminding me of, you know, uh, uh something about, um, loving, uh, guidance being just watching and not trying to interfere too much and yeah. just, and just, uh, being available on the side. That's how I remembered it in my head, but I couldn't remember the exact story. Um, so, uh, I, I'm, <clears throat> I thought I just, Apparently, our mind was going to the same place because I because you're you're bringing it in today too. But um, I don't know. Maybe if you want to speak a little bit more on, on that connection between uh, stories and and uh, grandmotherly mind or grandparental mind, or uh, you know, if that if if you're feel if you were um, thinking of that uh, that same passage yesterday as well, or if, if there's any connection there. Yeah. Um, uh, I missed some of the talk because I had something else. I didn't come in till the very end. Um, but, I, but in hearing the grandmother mind, um, it is a different way of, of, it, it could be the name you give that loving watcher, that, that witness, um, I, in a, a yogic tradition, I, I worked with witness, but it felt very cold the way it was presented, but the extra warmth, um, and that sense of loving changes things and I, I think that again there's some sort of mysterious thing that happens it's not just the watcher on the side that if the kid's going to run in the street you, you're there for it which is you know sort of what a grandmother's job is um, but it's the actual just sitting there loving the child transforms them taking delight in the child having it is is enough to transform the child you don't actually have to do anything other than that um, I, I've got a, 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 a one-year-old right now living with us and, and it's so clear that what she hungers for is just to 
be a source of delight. And I think that's true when she's misbehaving as well as when she's behaving well. And thoughts are living beings in, in, in a way. And if our bodhisattva vows are to, um, to liberate all beings, it includes our thoughts, including our, our, our thoughts that we don't like, that we don't want to be a part of. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it, and, and even those little niggly stories that are, are irritating about, oh, I never got this, right? You know, all the stories that have that tone of voice. Um, if you start loving them, they, they, they shift. Um, or you see, oh, honey, okay, you're, you're, you're whiny today. Um, yeah, so th- those are my, um, my thoughts on that. I don't know if that addressed it at all, but it's what came to my mind. Yeah, it, precisely so. Thank you, so. Okay. Wait. Um, I, do I say hi to you over here? Hi, I see you. <laughs> uh, I lovingly see you. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know that I have, uh, oh my goodness. Uh, uh, I don't know that I have much to say, but other than to, to thank you for such a wonderful encouragement to practice. Um, I've definitely lately felt very much like that writer strapped to the runaway yeah. horse, desperately yeah. trying not to get flung onto the gravel of the road. Um, <laughs> and and this was a this was a wonderful encouragement to practice, which I, oh. I think I very much needed. So thank you for that. I think that's what um, is the job of uh, Sangha members to one one to another is to encourage each other's practice. So thank you for that uh, kind reflection. Joan, did you have come? Uh, I, I have nothing to add. Uh, I'm just kind of going to let, let that ruminate. And uh, thank you all. Thank you all for your practice. Yay. I have an idea about rumination that was uh, that that came up for me. Is to ruminate, I think, originates with the idea of cows chewing their cud. That, that there, there's a sense of rumination of that. And... If you ruminate, so this is also came up uh, listening to Brian's talk um, from from was that idea of you you take these teaching stories or these scriptures and you just chew on them and slowly let them digest and and come into you. But if you ruminate on a delusion or any of the three poisons, uh, greed, hate, or delusion in there, and you just chew on those, you're slowly poisoning yourself. So those ruminating thoughts can actually be the slow self poisoning. Um, that if you do it without awareness, um, but there, there's something about, again, the witnessing that, um, that leaches out the poison. Um, so there's, um, my thoughts on rumination.
the word you used there was digestion, which uh, when in Brian's talk, I mentioned how Katagiri Roshi used to talk about digestion a lot. Um, mm. So part of, um, you know, talking about these stories, narratives that show up <laughs> as we're sitting, the clouds that are part of the sky, um, to, to consider them. I like the loving witness, but also to dig into them in a way, to just, uh, you know, not to try and figure them out, but to uh, allow them to be uh, the... Uh, the living, the beings that we are trying to free and save, and all that—to uh, mm-hmm. be kind to our uh, and 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 take on all of the these thoughts and feelings and, and stories. Yes. So, um, yeah. Thank you. This way of uh, seeing the dynamics, the process of zazen, I think, is very important. It's not about getting rid of thoughts. So, thank you again. And. I- and loving a thought doesn't mean not questioning it or cre- questioning its veracity. Um, because, again, if you keep believing that no one loved me um, when somebody loved you, I mean, that there are evidences otherwise. But if you have this story of no one loving you and you just kind of lovingly let that story go on or permissively let that story go on, it's not an act of love that sometimes to, to challenge those um, yes. cons- constructions is most important. That's it. Thank you very much, Ko. I think I may have been at the session you were at with Reb in Cleveland. Oh, okay. Where was it? It was at the gathering place. Maybe so. It was a two day. It was a two day at the gathering place, um, which was a place where cancer survivors um, come. They they rented the space there. Yeah, maybe it was at a different. I've been to several in Cleveland. Okay. With them. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was thinking about um, accompanying these thoughts to the source, following the story to its origin as uh-huh. a practice that I found very helpful. Oh, that's great. So there's a, that lovingness also affirms the Buddha nature of the thoughts, actually. That's how I see it. So you brought that up for me. Thank you. Thank you for that addition. I love that idea of following it back to the source, that, that, that part of respecting something is, is, um, is giving it enough attention to actually, uh, or left focus that goes on with enough time to sort of see where it, it's come from. I, 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 that's a, 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 a lovely idea that I will play with 